Today we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 17. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you, as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, some people have said, that the ages of three to four are called the magic years. Um, and I've been learning this as a parent of a three-year-old, um, that sometimes fantasy and reality kind of blend together with a three- or four-year-old. Um, and sometimes this is just kind of really cute, and sometimes it's just downright hilarious. Um, like a few weeks ago, um, Paul said, my son Paul said, um, we need to pray for Mufasa, from the Lion King because he got hurt by the gazelle. And so that was really cute. We just stopped and we prayed for Mufasa from the Lion King. Um, sometimes it's kind of hilarious. Like he told my uh, mother-in-law a few weeks ago that when he was a baby, he went hunting bears, and while he was hunting bears, he saw a unicorn. Don't know where that came from, but children have trouble sometimes distinguishing fantasy from reality and they say actually that's that's why they often have night terrors because they don't realize you know that their dream isn't real um and it's not just toddlers i don't know if you've ever had you know a dream that was super vivid and super um realistic and then you wake up and you feel like it's real uh, i've had this like with good things and with bad things um like i have a dream that like i got a hundred thousand dollars and I'll wake up and be in really, this really good mood, and I'll realize, oh, it wasn't real. <laughs> or, on the other hand, I'll wake up, I'll have this dream that, like, someone's trying to break into my house, and I'm trying to, to run away or, you know, get them out of the house. And then I'll wake up, and I know that it's not real, but I'm still looking at the door and checking all the windows to make sure there isn't somebody coming in. Uh, sometimes fantasy kind of blends with reality, and they say that this actually happens with uh, people who have uh, disorders with, you know, borderline personality disorder or schizophrenia, oftentimes the reason they have, you know, kind of delusions is because their thoughts, sometimes even their dreams, uh, become reality. They think that they're real. They think they actually happen to them. 
sometimes it's, you know, people can even have false memories. You know, they'll dream something and think that, you know, they either did something or, or didn't do something um, and don't realize it's a dream. It's not a reality. So sometimes, you know, it can become blurry between fantasy and reality. Um, and sometimes people have trouble kind of removing themselves from fantasy. Uh, back in 2009, when the first Avatar movie came out, and actually this past year, um, past December, when the other second Avatar came out, there was this syndrome that they came up with. It's called PADS, and it's called Post-Avatar Depression Syndrome. And apparently a lot of people experienced this, that they went and saw the movie and they saw this beautiful Pandora and they saw this you know, kind of untouched land with all these beautiful plants and uh, just beautiful scenery. And then they left that place and saw like the reality of the world of pollution and all of these things in our world that, you know, sin has caused. And some people were apparently depressed about it and uh, some allegedly were even suicidal. So sometimes people have trouble coming back from a fantasy to real life. Um, after Stephanie and I were married, we went to uh, St. John on our honeymoon. And I remember on the way down to St. John on the airplane, uh, meeting a lady and, who lived in St. John. I remember her telling us um, how she had visited St. John years ago. And um, every time she kind of left that place, she kind of felt depressed and felt like she was being drawn back there. And I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. But then I went there, and I kind of understand what she was talking about. You know, the temperature was like a solid 80 degrees all the time, you know, crystal clear waters, uh, all this wildlife, sea turtles, and most of all, no responsibilities. And I remember the last day of our trip, you know, I was just kind of getting emotional because I felt like I was just leaving this beautiful place, didn't know when I was going to come back, if I was ever going to come back, and there was just this kind of sadness that I'm leaving this beauty to go back to real life. Sometimes it's hard to kind of leave a high place or a place of, uh, a, a, of a dream to come back to real life. And as we look at this passage, I think that that's kind of what happens in this passage. We see the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, from one perspective, it's kind of like a dream. It's almost like a fantasy. You know, of course, it's real. But Jesus talks about things that are incredible. He talks about uh, those who are mourning being blessed. He talks about these ethics that, you know, kind of go beyond human reason, that we're not supposed to retaliate, that we're supposed to love our enemies, that our, that our language is supposed to be truthful all the time. We don't have to have oaths, that, that we shouldn't get divorced. And, you know, of course, he gives one exception for that. But he gives all of these teachings uh, about what the kingdom of God is like, and it almost seems like a dream. It almost seems like a fantasy because the things that he's talking about are so idealistic and so kind of uh, different from the way we experience the world. And so Jesus is up on this mountain giving the Sermon on the Mount, teaching what the kingdom of God is like in, in, in ways that would kind of just blow people's mind about what life was like. And then he comes down from the mountain. And as he comes down from the mountain, he is hit with all of the forces of darkness. He's hit with the reality of real life. And so the question that I'd like to consider today in, in chapter 8, as we look at chapter 8, is how does the kingdom of God intersect with real life? How does what Jesus talks about, that this, this kind of almost dream world about what the kingdom of God, God is like, how does that interact with suffering? How does that interact with the problems we face in our life? And in turn, how do we bring the kingdom of God to bear 
on our real life. And I think that Jesus tells us a few things that we need to do if we're to experience life in the kingdom of God. The first thing he says that we need to do is we need to believe uh, in the power of the king. If we're going to experience life in the kingdom of God, we need to believe in the power of the king. And so he demonstrates this through his, his, his message and, the, and the, the message that Matthew portrays in this book. So the first encounter that Matthew records is a leper who comes and kneels before Jesus. Uh, in this simple phrase, we see a man who inc- expressed incredible faith. Now, lepers, leprosy was a, a disease that was, you know, kind of covered a few different skin diseases. But there were a few things about leprosy that we need to know. First of all, leprosy meant that you were going to be separated from everybody that you knew. Leprosy meant that you were going to be separated into a leper colony, that you were going to have to leave your family. Often these diseases were contagious. To touch someone who was, uh, had leprosy would make you unclean. And so you, if you have leprosy, you are a castaway. You are cast off from society. You do not fit in any longer. It's also something that was permanent. It was very rare that someone would be healed from leprosy. It, it, it happened on occasion, but it was so rare that people thought that it was kind of being akin to being raised from the dead. That if you're going to be healed from leprosy, it's like being brought back to life. And so this leper comes and kneels before Jesus. Why is this significant? Because approaching somebody when you have leprosy is a no-no. In fact, you were supposed to announce yourself. If someone was coming near you, you're supposed to say, I'm leper, don't come, don't come close. And yet he approaches Jesus, kneels before Jesus. It'd be today like someone comes up and gives you a big hug and a kiss on the cheek and says, uh, I just want to let you know, by the way, I, had, I was diagnosed with COVID yesterday. And you'd be like, nope, six feet away, six feet away. And, and that's how they thought. If someone has leprosy, stay away, do not get close to me. But he has the boldness to come up and kneel right before Jesus. And the faith that he has is really incredible. He says that God, he, he doesn't doubt the power of God, that God could heal him, even though it was something that seemed like a death sentence, even though it was something that seemed like you'd have to be raised from the dead. He doesn't doubt God's power in Christ to heal him. If we're going to experience life in the kingdom of God, we need to firmly believe in the power of the king. Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. The sad reality is that many of us do not access the power of God because we don't really believe in the power of God. The scriptures tell us that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. And so uh, this changes how we view reality. Uh, Romans 8, 11, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raises Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Often we proclaim the power of God, but I don't think we always believe in the power of God. And I think the evidence sometimes is the way that we pray or our lack of prayer. If we truly believe that God can do what he says he can do, would we not be falling on our faces before him, begging him to move the mountains in front of us? 
And sometimes we see the forces of darkness and we see this as kind of evidence that God isn't able or isn't willing to, to work in our behalf. You know, you think about this person who had leprosy. He could have thought to himself, well, I've got leprosy. Um, if God wanted to heal me, he could. So God must have forgotten about me or God must not be able to heal me. But he doesn't do that. Of course, he acknowledges the will of God. He says, if, if you will, you can heal me. And sometimes God doesn't always choose to heal us. But he doesn't doubt the power of God. He knows that God can heal him if he chooses to. And just because God hasn't acted on our behalf doesn't mean the power isn't there. Let's say I call an electrician and I, I say, I'm having trouble, all the lights are off in my house. And I go through my house and show him all the lights. I say, see, it's darkness. All, every, every room, it's darkness, there's no light. But then he looks and he notices all the switches are off. He says, you don't have a power problem, you just don't have the switch turned on. Just because there's darkness doesn't mean the power isn't there. And sometimes the switch is off. God hasn't turned that switch on yet. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have the power. And so as believers, we need to believe that he does care for us. That's what we looked at last week when we talked about asking uh, from the Father and how his heart is to hear us and answer us. So we need to believe that he's going to answer us. We also need to believe that he's able to answer us. That there's nothing that's too big for him in our lives. There's no mountain that's too high. There's no struggle that's too deep. You know, leprosy, it's a death sentence. But this, this leper comes to Jesus in boldness and he says, I believe that you can even raise me from the dead, so to speak. I believe that you can do this incredible thing through me. And so if we want to believe, if we want to experience life in the, in the kingdom of God, we need to um, truly believe in the power of God. But we also need to submit to the authority of God. Now, in the next episode, we encounter a centurion. A uh, centurion was someone of great authority. Uh, originally, the Roman centurions would be in charge of 100 troops. Practically, it kind of moved to 80, but he was, a, he was in charge of a number of people. And so this centurion is different from Jesus in, in many different ways. It's not some, he's not someone that you would expect to come to Jesus. First of all, he's a Roman. To be a centurion, he had to be a Roman citizen. He was of noble birth, um, and he's kind of in charge of the Jews. Um, and, you know, there was some animosity there. The, the, the Roman people, you know, kind of oppressed the Jews at times and probably viewed them as odd and their rituals as kind of strange. As, and it's kind of an inferior race, so to speak. The Hebrews, for their, for their part, they also despised the Romans. They thought of them as, you know, being occupiers, as being corrupt, as being godless. And so racially and morally, there's kind of animosity there between Romans and Jews. But this man, this centurion is different. Uh, we learn in the book of Luke that he actually loved the people of God, loved the Jewish people, and the Jewish people loved him. And he comes to Jesus and brings this, this request, this situation, this problem that he has. His servant is ill and suffering terribly. We don't know what he what he was suffering with, uh, scholars have suggested it could have been polio or epilepsy or uh, some, some other disease like that. But he was suffering terribly. And Roman soldiers would serve for 20 years. And while they were serving, uh, they weren't allowed to have a family. And so this servant might have been kind of the closest person to this centurion. And so he comes to Jesus with this request. And then Jesus says this, he's in verse 7, he says, I will come and heal him. 
Now, the Greek translation of this phrase, uh, or the, the Greek way that this is uh, translated, uh, the subject I, or ego in Greek, is, is put into the sentence. And it's not necessary. If, if you were just going to say, if Jesus was just saying, I will come, to him, come and heal him, it wouldn't be necessary to put the I. Uh, in the Greek language, kind of the, the, the uh, subject isn't always necessary. But it's included in this passage, and the most likely the reason that it's included is for emphasis. And so really what Jesus is most likely saying here is, are you saying that I should come to your house? That I, being a righteous Jew, faithful Jew, should come under the house of a Gentile? See, in, in that day and age, it was believed that if you entered into the home of a godless Gentile, you would become unclean. So Jesus says, are you saying that I, a Jew, should enter into your home, a Gentile? And um, the centurion's response was remarkable. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm just asking you to say the word. I mean, think about that. This Roman centurion who has all this authority, who, you know, by nature would think this is an inferior people that, we're, that you have subjugated them. We're in charge here. And he says, I'm not even worthy to come, for you to come into my house. Not even worthy. And then his faith goes even deeper. He says, you don't even have to come. I, I believe that you have such authority. Uh, I'm a man who has authority. You know, I have all these troops, and I say go, and they go. I say come, they come. And I believe that you have this greater authority, and I believe that all you have to do, you have to just say the word, and my servant will be healed. This was incredible faith because even in the ancient world, um, there were kind of tales of miracle workers who would heal by various means, who, you know, maybe by touching someone or by doing, you know, kind of spells and things, someone could be healed. But it was kind of the stuff of legends for someone to heal from a distance, for someone to just speak the word and for have some, to have someone be healed. And so the amount of faith that he has to believe that Jesus had that authority was truly remarkable. And it says in the text, that Jesus marveled at this. He marveled at this. And he said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In order to experience the kingdom of God, we not only need to believe in the power of God, but we need to also submit to the authority of God. We need to realize and understand and submit to the fact that Jesus is the king. We're not the king. We're not on the throne. We were bought with a price. We belong to Christ. And I think some, sometimes we kind of fall into trouble because sometimes we give Christ authority of only part of our lives. And maybe there are certain areas of our life where we've kind of waved the white flag and surrendered to him. But other areas, we're kind of fighting for the throne. You know, some of us, maybe we love God, live like moral lives, but we're plagued with anxiety. We don't really trust that God cares for us. Some of us, maybe we honor God with our money, believe that God owns it all. We tithe, we share with those who are poor. But maybe when it comes to our words, we don't submit those to Christ's authority. Maybe some of us have great actions where we love the people around us. We show great concern to people around us, but we have a problem with gossip, speaking behind people's back. I think we all have areas in our life as believers that we've surrendered, then other areas where we're kind of struggling. That yes, we, we put Jesus on the throne, but then we're trying to claw back on that throne. 
But Jesus is the authority. Jesus has all power and authority. And what if we had such reverence for Christ that he marveled at our obedience? What if we had such reverence for his authority that he marveled at the way that we honor him with our lives? In our culture, we value autonomy and independence. And the idea of submission is thought as being kind of antithetical to freedom. And yet in the scriptures, we see that freedom comes through obedience and submission. Freedom comes in recognizing that we don't have all the answers and we simply need to follow the one who does. We need to submit to the authority of God. And so if we want to experience life in the kingdom of God, we can't be on the throne. We can't be vying for God. We need to give him and honor him in the place that he is and the throne of our lives and give him all honor and glory. So if we want to experience life in the kingdom of God, we need to submit to his story. It's not about what we think. He's on the throne. And finally, we need to understand the heart of the king. Really, when we look at this passage, I think that's the thing that sticks out the most. Sticks out the most the people that he's ministering to. The first is a leper, a castaway from society. And he does something that's not wise, not expected. When this leper comes to him, what does he do? He reaches out his hand and he touches him. He didn't have to do that. He could have just spoke the word. He does that in the next passage. I mean, if there's any time that he would just speak the word, you'd think it would be the, with the leper. But he doesn't do that. He reaches out and touches him. It's probably the only human contact he had received in, any, in years. But what is he doing? He's saying, you matter to me. Even though you've been cast away from society, you matter to me. And your sin isn't too deep for me. Your uncleanness isn't too deep for me. I mean, to touch someone who is a leper, make you unclean, but not with Christ. With Christ, he touched the leper, and he made the leper clean. And so that's the first person he encounters, then the centurion that he encounters. Jesus responds, says, I'm willing to heal him. He speaks the word, his servant is healed, and he makes this incredible pronouncement about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God will be filled with people from the east and the west with Gentiles. While it's not proper in that day for a Jew to enter into the home of the Gentiles, Jesus is inviting the Gentiles into his house. And he's showing him, one day, everyone is going to be invited to my house. Jesus heals. Jesus touches. And then we see at the end of the passage that we looked at today that many people are coming to Jesus. People who are sick, people who are, are uh, plagued with demons, and he's casting them out by the word of his power. And at the end of this passage, Matthew adds the following comment. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It's interesting to think about um, when it comes to healings, people kind of fall into two different camps, and sometimes we can go to two different extremes. On the one hand, you know, there's some people who would say, you know, this healing was just for this time period, and, um, you know, Jesus is talking about being healed of our sins, and, and that's, you know, the only context where we're healed. You know, and then others from kind of more of a charismatic background would say, well, you know, Jesus came to heal us, and, you know, it's all about physical healing, as if Jesus came and died on the cross to heal us from a backache or something like that. 
You know, and we kind of go to these two extremes, and I think if we go to either of these two extremes, we fall into trouble. The kingdom of God invades the kingdom of man, and I think we may make a mistake if we choose one or the other. And as we see the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of man, things get changed. As Jesus comes to the earth and dies on the cross, he offers us a relationship with him that changes everything. That means spiritually, emotionally, physically. Does that mean that we're always healed, that we always receive the healing that we hope for? The answer is yes, but not always now. Not always in the time that we want it, not always even in this life. But Jesus comes and he offers us peace, he offers us renewal, he offers us freedom, and one day we will be healed. The Hebrews talked about the word shalom, which was you know, roughly translated peace, but really talked about wholeness, physical, emotional, spiritual. And that's where we're headed. That's where Jesus is offering us a life with him that changes everything, even though it might not come on our timetable. This world is not our home. We're in process morally, relationally, emotionally, and physically. God's not done with us yet, but even though he's not done, even though sometimes the power is out and it looks like darkness, God is still working, and we can trust the heart of the king. In, in the lower region of the Congo of Africa, uh, tribal artisans often uh, are called upon to craft what are called nasinki nongi, or power objects. These wooden fetishes in the shape of human beings, uh, most often, are, are kind of objects that they use to kind of take their sins, so to speak, or heal their diseases. In other words, they'll create this object, and then if someone is dealing with something, whether it's a physical thing or a spiritual, emotional thing, they'll take an object from that person, and they'll nail that to that fetish. So they might take a lock of someone's hair and nail it to that fetish, or they might take a, a piece of their clothing and nail it to the fetish. And this act, they say, tells the spirit what is wrong and calls upon its power to heal them. As believers, we don't need those things. As believers, we don't need those things because Christ was nailed to the cross once and for all. And he dealt with our greatest problem, sin and death. And one day we will be healed physically, emotionally, spiritually. The kingdom of God has broken into the kingdom of man. Fantasy has invaded reality. But one day we will be whole. The teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are not just a pipe dream. They're going to become real. They are becoming real in the words of Christ, in the movement of Christ's Spirit. Jesus is changing everything. But in order for us to experience life in the kingdom of God, we need to recognize the power of the king, submit to the authority of, the, of God, and understand the heart of the king. The British playwright Eugenia O'Neill once said this, Obsessed by a fairy tale, we spend our lives searching for a magic door and a lost kingdom of peace. Obsessed by a fairy tale, we spend our lives searching for a magic door and a lost kingdom of peace. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ is that door to the kingdom of peace. As believers in Christ... A dream, a fantasy, is invading reality. And as believers in Christ, we'll never be the same. The world will never be the same because of Christ's kingdom invading the kingdom of man. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're God 
of all power. We thank you that there's nothing in our life that's beyond the scope of your power. We thank you that you're God who raises the dead. And that as your spirit lives inside of us, we know that that power is available to us. Lord, help us to rely on you. Help us to be people of prayer, people who believe that you can move mountains, that you can change our circumstance. Lord, help us to believe that you are who you say you are. Help us to submit to your authority in our life. Lord, I pray that we, you would be on the throne of every area of our life, that we wouldn't hold anything back, that we wouldn't buy for your throne, that every area of, your, of our lives would be brought into submission to your spirit. And Lord, as we obey, as we walk forward in faith, Lord, I just pray that our, our faith and our obedience would be so strong that it would make you marvel, Lord. And Lord, help us to understand your heart. Understand that even when we see darkness, even when it seems like you're not working, that you're in control and you care about us. Even when we don't experience healing now, even when we feel spiritually far from you, even when we deal with mental illness, even when we deal with physical illnesses and handicaps that hinder us, Lord, help us to know and trust that you have a plan for us. And that plan is good. And one day that plan will be restoration, shalom. We'll spend forever with you in perfect wholeness and perfect peace. Help us to hold on to that as we live our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.